The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. you spectacular people welcome to this 469th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i'm your host diane and this is kelly kelly the sick one (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) so her voice is going to be a little bit off on this one and you may hear a little bit more of me rather than kelly but we're glad that you are on the other end of what we think is probably the flu i don't know i had you in bed for three days yeah, it's it's been a lot of years since I climbed up above 103, but <laughs> I'm on the rebound now. And you're not talking age, you're talking fever. I'm gonna beat you. <laughs> you give me fever. Boom, boom. Well, anyway, on this episode, we're talking about the Western Lunatic Asylum of Virginia. And this one is very different than a lot of the asylums that we've talked about before. Most of them had a Kirkbride system, the way the buildings were set up. This wasn't built that way. And today it actually runs as a hotel. And since we're covering it on the podcast, it clearly has some rumors of hauntings going on here. And this location was suggested by our listener, Kara Donnell. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular Crew, drumroll, we have one, Morgan. And she spells her name very coolly. It's with a Y, G-Y-N. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Naughty. Many of us have enjoyed one of the various Cirque shows which incorporate acrobatics and sometimes death-defying feats. Well, let me introduce you to Cirque du Sewer. This troupe is comprised of two humans, some cats, and rats. You heard me correctly. Melissa Arleth and her assistant, Vitaly, have trained her furred feline and rambunctious rodent rescues to perform various tricks and feats of bravery. Their act includes obstacle courses, walking on tight ropes, and jumping through flaming hoops while their humans perform their own stunts and comedy bits. Melissa stated that her improv skills have improved when her fur kids declined to perform. She commented that sometimes she thinks, look at my amazing cats, while other times she thinks, my cat is a jerk. But this was said with a laugh. Besides touring the country, Cirque du Sewer has also performed on America's Got Talent, Nickelodeon's Unleashed, and The Gong Show. We love that all of Melissa's cats and rats are rescues, but organizing them into a circus show certainly is odd.
Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. month of January on the 19th in 1946, Dolly Parton was born. Dolly Parton is most well known as a country singer, but she's proven through the decades to be a woman of multi-talents, and she's considered a national treasure in much the same way that Betty White was because she is just a sweet woman and a good person. Parton was born in Tennessee along the banks of the Little Pigeon River in a one-room cabin to a family she described as dirt poor. She started singing in church when she was six and received her first real guitar when she was eight. She began performing as a child and appeared on the Grand Old Opry when she was just 13. She moved to Nashville in 1964, the day after she graduated high school. Dolly made her album debut in 1967 with Hello, I'm Dolly. Today, she has sold more than 100 million records worldwide, with 25 singles reaching number one on the Billboard Country Music Chart. She has written over 3,000 songs and won 11 Grammy Awards. Dolly jumped into acting as well and received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress for the movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Last year, 2022, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her greatest achievement is her philanthropy, which has been focused on East Tennessee where she grew up. What is your favorite Dolly Parton song? Mine is Here You Come Again. I really enjoy uh, that song that she does, Code of Many Colors. Imagine a luxury hotel in an old insane asylum. That is precisely what has happened with the Western Lunatic Asylum, or as it was later known, the Western State Hospital. The main administration building is now the Blackburn Inn and Conference Center. This is a good setting for the hotel as this was an asylum meant to be a beautiful, tranquil, and moral place for treatment of the mentally ill. This was Virginia's early attempt to provide enlightened care to suffering people. Later, this was a medium security prison. Today, it stands as a possibly haunted hotel and complex of condominiums. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Western State Hospital. The western part of Virginia was really growing in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and with that came a need for a place to care for the mentally ill. A commission was formed by the state government that was tasked with finding a location for a new asylum. The town of Staten was chosen, and this is spelled S-T-A-U-N-T-O-N. I hope we're saying that right. I listened to different videos. Some said Staunton. Some said Stanton. We're going to go with Stanton. This town had been settled in 1732 and was named for the wife of colonial governor Sir William Gooch, Lady Rebecca Stanton. 
We mentioned the Northwest Territory in our last episode on River Raisin Battlefield, and Stanton actually served as its capital from 1738 to 1770. The town was officially incorporated in 1801. The Virginia Central Railroad made Stanton a transportation hub in 1854, and it was a supply base during the Civil War. President Woodrow Wilson was born here in 1856. Stanton, Virginia managed to escape much of the destruction that the state of Virginia suffered during the Civil War. So many 18th century structures still exist, including the Western State Hospital. The Antebellum Asylum is thought to be one of America's outstanding and best-preserved early institutional properties. The hospital was first known as Western Lunatic Asylum of Virginia. The main administration building is known as Building 12, and construction was completed in 1828. Baltimore architect William F. Small designed the building, and the builders included George W. Wall, John Hannon, and William Good. The building is made of brick done in a Flemish bond, which means you have a long brick and then a smaller square brick side by side. Stretcher bond just does long bricks. The English bond has a row of long bricks and then a row of small square bricks. Kelly, I always throw this stuff in because that interests me. It may bore the listeners. I don't know. But when I see Flemish bond bricks, I'm like, what does that mean? And so then when I looked it up, I was like, well, what is the difference with these other ones? To me, Flemish bond is usually what you mostly see is the big long brick and then the short brick next to it. I've never seen one that has a long row of bricks on top of a small square of bricks, which is an English bond. So it's probably because I've never been over to England. Perhaps. The center of the building rises three stories and has an octagonal cupola on top surrounded by a sheaf of wheat balustrade. This is a long building, and the most distinctive features are Greek ionic porticos that flank the building and one at the center entrance. So it's like you have three of these Greek ionic porticos on the front of the building that you can see. There's two on the wings, there's one on each wing, and then one in the middle. Right. The interior was built to be beautiful and elaborate as well, with round arch openings, molded keystones, and fan lights with geometric tracery. The doors to patient rooms had small hinged openings so that patients could be observed. Staff apartments were up on the third floor. In 1844, heating went from just stoves and fireplaces to a hot air heating system for the wings. And so this is very different than when we talk about the Kirkbride buildings, which is basically this big building that just wheels off into all these other buildings. This looks more like what I would say would be a government building from back during the federal period and stuff. In the 1830s, architect Thomas R. Blackburn was hired for an expansive renovation. Blackburn was a protege of Thomas Jefferson, and so he added many Jefferson-esque design elements. These included a handcrafted spiral staircase leading to the cupola, and that is gorgeous. I will try to get pictures of it for you guys on Instagram. I love spiral staircases, and this one just looks wonderful. So this leads to the cupola and the rooftop veranda, spacious room wings, and beautiful gardens. More buildings, like the large wards known as Building 7 and Building 31, were added until the complex reached its present form in 1851 with the addition of a chapel known as Building 13. Should you be putting a chapel in Building 13? Ah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> this made Western State Hospital the second largest asylum in America at that time. The large wards were designed by Baltimore architect Robert Carey Long, Jr., Building 31 was built by William B. Phillips in 1842. An octagonal cupola graces the roof of that building as well. The second floor housed the patient dining room. Alterations were made in 1848. Building 7 is the largest building on the property and was built in 1840 by Lushbaugh and Grove. This one is four stories tall, most of them are three, 
and also has an octagonal cupola and the building forms a U-shape. The chapel started off as a dining hall and was built in 1843 and was designed by Thomas Blackburn. The actual chapel was up on the third floor and wasn't in use until 1851 and could accommodate 350 people. The ceiling was arched and frescoes covered the walls with Gothic stained glass windows that represented different scenes from biblical history. Female patients made needlework that they sold to fund the interior of the chapel and raised $900. I thought that was cool that the patients actually were the ones who raised the funds to make their chapel. Most definitely. And this is very different because we don't really talk about chapels being at asylums. No, and to accommodate 350 people, that just seems like a fairly large number. It's got to be good sized. Yeah, it's not like they just set aside a room or something like this. I mean, they're building it to be like a church. I mean, Gothic stained glass windows with these different scenes from biblical history is just amazing. An 1851 annual report stated, We were honored not long since on a Sabbath afternoon with a visit from the President of the United States, Secretary of the Interior, and W.W. Cochran, Esquire of Washington City. It was the first occasion on which Fillmore and Mr. Cochran had ever witnessed a congregation of insane persons assembled for the purpose of divine worship, and such was the character of the scene that they could but be astounded at the order and decorum which prevailed, as well as be deeply affected by the solemn reverence exhibited for the place, the day, and the occasion. Mr. Cochran bought an organ for the chapel. The organ remains to this day. Ward 3 is also known as Building 6 and was built in 1842, as designed by Robert Carey Long, Jr. Craig Hudson and Graham built it. A modern porch sheltered the main entrance. These were the five main buildings that made up the complex and still exist today, mainly unaltered. So the key things here that I really wanted to share with people with this annual report is the President of the United States came to this asylum. I know, that's quite unusual. Yeah, so President Fillmore went there, and of course they're writing how they would have treated a lot of this back in 1851, calling them insane persons and actually being surprised that they could have order and decorum while they're in the chapel. But I just thought it was very cool that the president showed up and that they you know, we're like, wow, this is really a good place for people. So that's what I want everybody to get a feeling for. When this asylum first goes in, it really is an asylum. Asylum now has kind of a negative connotation to it because we have horror movies that go with it and they just think there's a bunch of mentally ill people in there and all this stuff. Whereas it was supposed to be, you know, an asylum is like a place of refuge. Right. So that's really what this place was like. It treated everybody like they were real human beings and that they could be cured and all this stuff. And that's because of the man who was there almost from the beginning. So the person who helped this asylum to be this way in the very beginning was Dr. Francis T. Stribling. He was a superintendent close to when the asylum opened, and he believed that the beauty of buildings and the property around them could have a therapeutic effect on the patients. Francis Taliaferro Stribling was born on January 20, 1810 in Virginia. He became the first graduate of the University of Virginia Medical School. Dr. Stribling was only 26 years old in 1836 when he became head of Western State Hospital. Goodness. I mean, I can't imagine putting a 26-year-old in charge of a hospital, but he was great. He was the second superintendent and would remain in that position for 38 years. Asylums had opened all across the country and mostly ran as jails. These were places where you just stored people, lock them away from society and just store them somewhere. Dr. Stribling had a very different vision. Not only did he believe in natural treatment, but he also believed that insanity was curable. This flew in the face of the establishment. His treatment was referred to as moral medicine. This meant that patients would only be restrained when absolutely necessary, 
They would be fed a nutritious diet and encouraged to exercise. They were encouraged also to attend religious services, hence why they put the chapel in, and practice an occupation. Now, one of the reasons why this asylum was different than some of the other ones is that violent patients were separated from those who could be cured and were generally not admitted to Western State Hospital. So he could kind of handpick the people that would come in. So, of course, they are going to do better if you don't have to deal with the ones that are violent or there's just nothing you can do for them. Sure, that definitely helps improve the environment. Yes. This caused some bitter disputes with other doctors. Stribling helped revise Virginia law as to the care of the mentally ill. And he was a good friend and advisor to Dorothea Dix, who was an advocate for the mentally ill and had a hand in the founding of 30 hospitals for the treatment of the mentally ill. Stribling also helped found the American Psychiatric Association. That's not what it was called when it was first founded, but it was the precursor to that. A lot of people have probably never heard of this man, and he is very involved with treatment of the mentally ill. Well, now they will have heard of him. Yes. As they should. (laughs) A poem he wrote in 1838 goes... When does a man so urgently require the aid of a rational fellow being to guide his footsteps as he wanders thus in mental darkness? Or when does he so much need the knowledge and guidance of others as when his mind is a wild chaos, agitated by passions that he cannot quell and haunted by forms of terror, which the perverted energy of his nature is perpetually calling into being but cannot disperse? Dr. Robert Hansen, superintendent of Western State Hospital, wrote in 1967, In an age of the common man, Dr. Stribling possessed an uncommon and profound knowledge of human nature and the importance of human relationships. He believed that the drives, interests, and needs of the insane were the same as those of others, and that satisfaction of them through human relationships would help restore their reason. Dr. Stribling was a remarkable man who died in 1874. During Dr. Stribling's tenor at the hospital, the grounds resembled a resort. They even called it that, basically. It was the Western State Resort kind of thing. With terrace gardens and mountain views from the rooftops. And they built the rooftops so that they could go up on them and walk around because he wanted them to get this feeling of being in nature. He knew that it would be curative to them. I mean, if you think about it, it could be very peaceful to you and getting the sunlight is good for you. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The facility grew to over 22 buildings, offering patients the opportunity to take part in farming and animal care. So like a lot of the other asylums that became their own little city, same thing here. You've got your barns where they could care for the animals and they had their gardens and uh, their own power plants and all kinds of stuff. After the passing of Dr. Stribling, things changed at the hospital and the once utopian model disintegrated. As happened at every other asylum, this one became overcrowded and people were basically warehoused and ankle and wrist restraints, physical coercion, and straitjackets were used. Terrible. Yep. (laughs) If it's not broke, don't uh, try to fix it. I'm sure the good doctor was rolling over in his grave. Oh, I'm sure he is, and it's going to get worse. Electroshock therapy and lobotomies were employed. The Eugenical Sterilization Act was passed in 1924 in Virginia, 
and patients at Western State were forcibly sterilized. This practice ended in the 1970s when the act was repealed. So I said 1924 is when it was passed. It wasn't until the 1970s that it was repealed. So for like 50 years, they were forcibly sterilizing people. It's not surprising that the hospital embraced this because eugenicist Joseph D. Jarnett was director of the hospital from 1906 to 1943. So basically you had uh, a person who was this wonderful, kind human being passes away and the devil takes over because this man is positively evil. Pretty much. To give you an idea of how evil he is, a lot of his ideas were embraced by, well, this guy you might have heard of called Hitler. The Nazis got a lot of their ideas from the eugenicists that were here in America, and Dijarnet was one of them that they really liked his stuff. Not only did he run this hospital, but he decided he wanted to found a more private place. Like, this one is publicly run by the state. He wanted to have one where the people who could pay a little bit more money could go to. And why not name it after yourself? So he called it the Desjardins Sanitarium. And this was a private place for the mentally ill. That eventually is going to come under state control in 1975. And then it was turned into a children's hospital. So not only do you have this Desjardins doing this forcible sterilization of these people, but he liked to do experiments and stuff too. There's rumors that there was this place called the gas chamber down in the basement. And they would use gas to try to change the mood of their patients. So, I don't know, what, knock you out if you're getting a little too out of line with some some gas or something. Obviously, they were doing lobotomies here and all of the other therapies that we've talked about with the other asylums that we've covered. Whether it's your hot and cold baths, putting people in some kind of a solitary confinement while they've got straight jackets on, and, you know, just restraining people. Nothing but evil stuff going on, basically. Absolutely. I personally feel like this one is state-run. I have some stuff I want to do. So if I have a private place to do it, I can get away with more of it. That's what it sounds like. Now, the sanitarium is not necessarily right on this property. It's kind of up the hill, I guess, a little bit. This is completely abandoned and falling apart. And I watched a bunch of videos with some of your urban explorers going through it. I mean, it has been overrun with graffiti, and it's definitely falling apart. I wouldn't go through there without a mask. It is no trespassing gates all up and everything, so you can't go in and see it. But I can only imagine what happened there, and it almost makes you think they've done so much to restore this place that used to be the Western State Hospital and didn't do anything with that one. It's almost like they're like, we don't even want to touch that because it's just horrible what happened there. Although later on, it did become a children's hospital, so... The Western State Hospital moved in 1976 to a new location, and the property was converted into a medium-security men's penitentiary called the Stanton Correctional Center. This prison closed in 2003, and the site sat vacant. The state of Virginia gave the property to the Stanton Industrial Authority in 2005, who planned to build condominiums on the property, and they started selling those in 2008. Today, those are known as the Villages at Stanton. This is from the website. The Villages at Stanton consists of a remarkable collection of buildings situated on 80 sprawling acres in Virginia's renowned Shenandoah Valley, ranging from federal Greek revival structures built by the same Masons who constructed the University of Virginia to 20th century colonial revival buildings designed to complement the historic setting. This assemblage of buildings is situated on park-like grounds with gently sloping hills and a creek bordered by manicured lawns and weeping willows. The location is immediately adjacent to downtown Stanton, another extraordinary display of historic architecture and charm. 
and I watched a video of a young lady whose husband surprised her with a trip to Stanton and they stayed at a Airbnb there. Very cute street. It had all these really neat Victorian and uh, colonial revival type homes along it. And they visited the University of Virginia. And the minute they got on the campus, I went, holy cow, that looks like the Western State Hospital. Seeing how they describe themselves, it's like, oh, I see, because it's got the federal Greek revival. So that's what these are. That's the way the university was. You can see that was the thing at that time period. This is a master plan community with a goal to add commercial interests. Along those lines, in 2018, a portion of the complex debuted as the Blackburn Inn and Conference Center, which was then inducted into Historic Hotels of America. The Western State Hospital complex had already been added to the National Register of Historic Places on November 25, 1969. The Blackburn Inn is a boutique hotel, and one look at the rooms makes it hard to believe this was once a hospital and a jail. It's gorgeous. It's just a gorgeous property on the outside. It looks gorgeous on the inside. It's all updated, wonderful wood floors and everything. They still have the doors. I don't know. I'd call them like peep doors in the doors. Yeah. Where they could look in on the patients <laughs> and stuff. Hopefully they can actually lock from the interior yeah. now. <laughs> I, I'm assuming that you can't get those open now, but I just thought it was neat that they have the original door still there. There is also a restaurant there called Second Draft Bistro with a rotating list of craft beers, ciders, and wines right up our alley. It really is a gorgeous property, and it gets even better because it's reputedly haunted. The main spirits here are thought to be the patients, or should we say the victims, of Dr. Desjarnet. The man tortured many people, and their disembodied screams are said to echo through the hallways occasionally. Their disembodied footsteps and doors open and close on their own. The abandoned building that he had named for himself, the Desjarnet Sanitarium, is said to be haunted by Desjarnet himself and also has disembodied moans and screams. No one's allowed to visit now, but before it was boarded up, many people reported weird experiences. It is said that shadow people guard the building. The story is told about a little five-year-old boy who was abandoned here and he lost the ability to talk and walk and was confined to a wheelchair. A member of Fife Paranormal had worked there on security and he heard the unmistakable sound of a wheelchair behind him. And when he turned around, there was nothing. He continued walking, and this is outside. And he again heard the sound of a wheelchair, but he could hear it like it was on the gravel, which, again, blows my mind. You can't see anything, but it has enough substance to it that it's making the gravel make a noise. How does that happen? <laughs> I don't know. It's very interesting. Again, he turns around, and there's nothing there. He also once saw someone standing out in the weeds. Supposedly, there was a mass burial area. Now, there is a graveyard here for people who had died at the hospital, and most of them are not marked, but there are a few tombstones. I watched a video of a paranormal group out there trying to get some responses on one of those EMFs that looks like the triangle that has the lights on either side that you can turn green or red, and it just mostly stayed purple. I think one time it went green, and I must have watched 15 minutes, and it was like, I don't think there's anything that wants to talk to you out there. But anyway, there was also supposedly this other like mass grave area that was for the sanitarium. And now there's a golf course there. But part of it has been overgrown with these weeds. So he sees someone standing out in the weeds. He's on security. He's like, well, I better go down and, you know, tell this person you need to get off the property. He gets down to where this figure had been. He sees the weeds move fast towards him. So he's not even actually seeing a figure anymore. It's just like when you're watching the wind blowing. So the weeds are coming at him like whoosh, like something's speeding by. And then they stop moving and there's no one there. Then he looked down the main path and sees a six foot shadow that then slid into the weeds in what he described as an inhuman way. 
So I don't know if it like slithered into like a snake <laughs> or what. But to me, it is just bizarre. And he didn't say what time of day this is. So I don't know if he like saw what looked like a shadow figure out in the weeds at night. And that's why he didn't really see anything coming at him, but he could see the weeds moving. And then he sees this other shadow that goes into the weeds or if it was during the day. Either way, it's going to be very creepy. He also had heard people say that they saw objects levitating inside. Oh, wow. That's the Desjarnet Sanitarium, which I'm not surprised that they've got crazy stuff going on there because of all the who knows what happened there. Very terrible things. Melissa Battle wrote this comment on a video about the Desjarnet Sanitarium. I recently stayed at the hotel behind this building, and you could definitely feel evil. It's a crushing feeling in your chest, nausea, and a general heaviness in the air that surrounds you as you drive along the road behind the building. The feelings drove me to more research. As I read out loud to my husband about the history of the place, our TV continued to turn off. Once I stopped reading, everything worked fine. I also took some pictures of handprints on a second-story window within the stairwell, which can only be reached by a ladder from both sides. These appear to be in the dust on the inside of the window near the top, and small in size like a five- to six-year-old child's. So I'm going to guess that those are probably from the time that it was a children's hospital. At least I hope. I hope they didn't have children in the asylum, but who knows back then. One of the spirits thought to be at Western State Hospital could be Sarah, who was an Irish immigrant who was brought to the asylum after killing her abusive husband. After she got to the hospital, she killed two guards. I mean, I could see, you know, you kill your abusive husband, you've had enough, but I'm not sure what was going on here that she killed two guards. So her treatment was, we're going to lobotomize you. So she was lobotomized and locked in a room where she was simply fed until she died. There are rumors that two construction workers disappeared while on the job doing renovations. They were never seen again, and their bank accounts were never touched. Wow. Did the hospital take them? Did ghosts? I mean, where did these guys go? Of course, I couldn't find any police reports that would back that up. Even stranger is the story about an intern from James Madison University. He was part of a group of four interns that were assisting in sorting records at the hospital. One day, he was found dead, facing the corner with a file in his lap. Again, I could not find a newspaper article about that, but what in the world happened? I'm curious as to whether he had issues with what was going on there, started to speak out about it, and they took him out. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes we blame things on something supernatural, and it could have been very physical. <laughs> uh, yeah, you need to shut up because we don't well, want the world to know what happened here. Yeah, the man was evil. And if you're going through those records, Lord only knows what they say. A man named Shelby worked on the security detail during the 1980s, and he claimed to feel cold spots and to see shadows. The place just felt strange to him. There are possibly ghosts left in the wake of this next horrible event. On the morning of February 24, 1883, seven male patients were given some liquid medication, and shortly thereafter, they all lost consciousness. Four died almost immediately. Two died in the next three days, and two recovered. Investigators figured out that poison had been used, and a chemistry professor figured out that it was the extract of the monkshood plant. There were several suspects, but no one was ever charged, so no justice came. Yeah, they interrogated a few people and looked into a lot of the stuff, but they couldn't find proof for anything, so they couldn't charge anybody because they also were like, well, maybe it was just an accident, but I don't know how you accidentally poisoned seven men. Aini B. from New York wrote on TripAdvisor, The second night was when we may have encountered a ghost, if you believe that. So this is a girl's trip. They decided to stay here. The two girls sleeping closest to the bathroom woke around 4 a.m. to the sound of the shower running. 
One of my friends got up and turned it off, but it was kind of odd. I mean, it is an old building, so believe what you want. No, that's not just odd. The shower doesn't just automatically turn itself (laughs) on. So something turned it on. And that is one of the things guests have reported happening. The shower turning on by itself. Apparently it happens quite a bit here. And again, this has been renovated. So the piping, everything has been changed out. So it shouldn't have some weird plumbing issue. Because we do know sometimes faucets can turn themselves on when you have these plumbing issues. But there shouldn't be that going on with these showers. They're not old anymore. Exactly. I was just going to make that same point. There have been reports of lights flickering and turning off and on by themselves. And locked windows have opened on their own. A Critty Romo on Reddit claimed that she only made it an hour in her room and had to leave because she felt such a heavy presence. That's pretty bad if you can only make it an hour in your room. Dave Sims wrote the fiction book Fear the Reaper about the Western State Hospital, and he told the newsleader that nearby businesses told him they often hear constant low moans of home alleged to belong to patients haunting the asylum campus. A friend of his lived in the loft apartments built in the portion of Western State Hospital that was renovated and then used as a prison until 2003. He recalled how the door to his friend's apartment, which housed windows still dressed with the original prison bars, would open without the wind's aid. Not even a heavy-duty lock kept the door shut at times. Asylums don't have a great reputation, but Western State Hospital really seems to have been a place dedicated to curing the mentally ill. Treating people as humans goes a long way, but as we know, most of the time this didn't happen, and eventually this hospital too devolved. And this may have left behind unrest. Is the Western State Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, this definitely started out on a very positive foot. Unfortunately, it didn't end there. And uh, I don't really know what happened with the medium security prison. They clearly didn't have bars up and things like that, so... I don't think anything bad happened while it was a prison. But it's good to see that they've saved these buildings. They have restored them. They're gorgeous. The property looks wonderful. The condos look like really nice places to live, too. And there are other haunts going on in this city. They actually have the Ghosts of Stanton walking tour. We do have a link up in the show notes where if you're in the area, you can check that out and maybe book a tour and find out about some of the other haunts all around the city. Excellent. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I'd gotten this email back in December and it got lost in all of my other emails. So I wanted to share it now. This is from Matt. He wrote, my wife and I have been to several of the locations or cities you've covered. She's had several feelings. One was when we were in the orphanage in Gettysburg, in the basement back in the solitary room where the lady would lock up the children in complete darkness She had an eerie feeling that I didn't have. The second was in the brewery in Savannah, Georgia. We took a walking ghost tour, and on the upper floor, she felt as if something or someone didn't want her there. Then in the basement, she went to take a picture of where the tunnels were that brought the slaves in from the river. Just as the guide shut off the light, she snapped the attached picture. She didn't see anything until a few days later when she was looking at her pictures. I hope you see what she caught. So I'm going to go ahead and put that picture up on Instagram. And see what you guys think. When I first looked at the picture, I'm like, well, it's just a dark picture. But then when I looked really close at it, I saw something else. It's easier to see the picture if it's in the dark. What do you think you see there, Kelly? A skeletal hand. Yeah, it's at the very far right down at the corner. It looks like a skeletal type hand reaching out. You know, I don't know. Maybe it was somebody who got their hand in the picture when she clicked it. And it's because the lights were being turned off at the same time that she's taking the picture or something weird there. But 
it's pretty creepy. So we'll put that up on Instagram and see what you think. Yeah, it could be. But now turn the lights back on in the closet. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly doesn't like that I turn the lights off in the closet. But I'm thank- afraid of the dark. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Matt. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. Greatest achievement is her philanthropy. Philanthropy. I can never say that word right. It's just like shoulder for me. It's like shoulder and soldiers, and I just have certain words that just can't do them. I have a hard time saying virtual. It always sounds weird. Or ritual. Anything that has that, or spiritual. Anything of the all at the end, you kind of get a little... You always tell me I say it funny, but that's how I've always said it. I don't think you say it funny. I just think you say it with a little air of... A little, a little bit of your own sophisticated. Is my pinky up in there? Yeah. And I say, <laughs> you've got your sexy cold voice on. You know, and you were teasing me about my fever and being a hundred and three years old and so forth. And I was about to compliment you. You cut your hair this morning. It looks very nice. Well, thank you, Kelly. So there was that. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> Did you girls sleeping closest to the bathroom? Roke. Roke? They They roke roke up. (laughs) Roke up. Roke up.